0: Hayward and our worship team picked out. Those are purposely chosen as we sing through some of these difficult times. Uh, I believe we're up and running. We had a little bit of technical difficulties. Our site was a little overloaded, I think. Uh, Even from our Wednesday service, we had over 1,100 views of that message. So um, we're getting uh, up in speed here trying to handle the amount of volume that's coming our way. But I think we're running on our website. We're running on Facebook Live. I'm getting thumbs up from tech booth. so we're so glad you're here, Um, you're precious to us, we believe that nothing can stop Christ's church, not because of who we are, but because of who is the head of the church, and so we just figure out how he wants us to gather, and how he wants us to worship together, and and by God's grace, we're doing that through technology. Um, and we'll continue to do this as long as we need to, but we will move back together as quickly as possible. We look forward to that day. Let's pray, and then we'll look at Philippians chapter 4. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a kind and gracious God. You know all things that are going on in our lives. You know that your church is uh, suffering, suffering. Um, in some places greater than others but all of it is suffering because we're separated and yet Lord here in America we're we're not suffering like some of our dear friends and church family that is in Europe or China or other places Lord we do pray for the church there we pray that you would give them strength cause them to trust you and know that their brothers and sisters in other places are praying for them weeping for their losses asking that god would give them great strength to evangelize in this great time of need lord lord we thank you that through technology we still can meet we can share this message around the globe and uh, not only to our own church family but many others lord we pray that you would use the things that were said and sung and done here this morning to glorify you Lord, before I end this prayer, I want to pray for people in our own church, Lord. We have several who are not feeling well, not able to uh, function as the way they desire, Lord. And we pray that you would heal them, Lord. You would strengthen them and you'd cause them to trust you greater through some of these challenges that they're going through. Lord, we have others that are preparing for procedures, Lord. I pray that they would have confidence in you, Lord that you are the great physician. You will guide the hands of the surgeons. You will help those who apply treatment to their body, Lord. And we pray that you would protect them during this time of illness, Lord. Lord, we praise you that our days are ordained by you before there were one of them, the Bible says. And so we can trust you wholeheartedly as we look forward to your return someday. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The elders this morning have asked me to preach from this particular text, and it is a, certainly a pleasure to grant that to them. Um, I do enjoy this text in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to reach back to verse 4, but focus mainly on 6 through 9. We'll see how far we get with this. We may continue this for a week or so um, as we go along. But this is a passage that is particularly designed and given to the church to help us with anxiety help us with worry and fear and things that would drive us away from not standing and walking with you and 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 so this text is meaningful to us and as Christians we we're reminded of it it's so easy for us to be swayed by news and fear uh, even as Christians but I trust that this this particular passage will work its way into our hearts, work its way into our minds as we think and contemplate how God has drawn near to us, how God has brought us into a point where we have been blood-bought, purchased, put into his family, and you are never far from us. And we can at any time reach out to you. The greater context of this passage is found at the end of verse 5. And there it says that God is near. That God is near. Do you believe the Lord is near to you? I think it's a good question. Think about that. Do you believe God is near to you? Do you believe God is distant from you? A lot of people have a a view of God that he is far away, that he is a distant God. Even some of our founding fathers of the United States were more deist, meaning they just believed that there was a God who started things, but you could not have a personal relationship with him. Even Christians I often speak with do not grasp how close God is to us. The Bible's clear that he sought us, not, not us seeking him. So he did the work. He came and chose us. Came particularly after us. So do you believe that God is near you? Do you believe that he's with you? The word agos is the Greek word. It means, it's a word used in several contexts, several different places, but, but it means he's absolutely close. He's absolutely close. He's near at hand. It's used of of neighboring towns so you could say this, God is our neighbor, in a sense. He's right there with us. He's at hand, the Bible says. Well, it's clear much of the world does not understand that. And the world does not have that relationship with God. At this point, much the majority of people in this world, he is still a judge to them. He is not a savior to them. So they are caught in fear and hysteria. Uh, the news scares them. The, the movement of this virus is, is panic. You can see it if you go out in public at the stores and, and you'll see the way people move and distance themselves. And, and, and certainly there's good, wise things to be done there. But you can see where people don't have a trust in a God who is near them. And this virus is serious and people are dying and we, we don't want to make light of that in any way. But Christians don't fear death. Christian, we're, we, we, we don't want to be caught up in a, in a plague of fear. We, we want to be caught up with the things of the Lord. Christians should be the most sane people in, in this insane world, in a sense. There are So many opportunities to show stability. To show that your feet are on something more solid than what the world is offering. There are so many opportunities for us to be joyful. I went into one of our local grocery stores running errands for my wife this week. It was the first time I had kind of been out in the public. I moved between my house and office quite a bit, studying and preparing for these things. But I went to a store and I... And I was pretty gripped by the fact of how many people were afraid. And God just gave me a spirit of joy. I ran into a couple of our Riverbend folks that were there. Some were employees and some were shopping there. And we had the most joyful conversations. And people were watching us speak about our Lord. And then just trying to be joyful to people because there was an absence of joy. Everybody was moving in their own zone and very serious. Christians, we have so much joy to express But death is not new to us. Uh, We need to think about death for a minute here. Death is not new to the Christian. We have seen death through the perfect scriptures ever since the fall of man. But death for Christians means something different. It means that this life has come to an end, and the second life that God has for this eternal life is granted, it has been conquered, death has been beat. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15 teach us that, that Jesus Christ came and he added flesh to his divine nature. He became like us so he could conquer death. In fact, the Bible says there that he took death literally out of the hands of Satan. And that's really the second death. That's the eternal death that he robbed away from Satan, which Satan gained at the fall. And so the Bible assures us. Um, one of the passages I really enjoy is First Corinthians fifteen twenty six. It says, "The last enemy that will be abolished is death." Now that's physical death. So I want you to understand this. God has a plan to take away physical death someday. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. He's taken away our second death. We will never be cast in the lake of fire. We'll never see the judgment that those who reject Jesus Christ will be. As Christians, we'll, we'll have that eternal state. But he says he's even going to destroy death, the death that we die physically uh, Revelation chapter 2, 11, as he's charging the seven churches, he says here, Jesus speaking, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So think about this. God is going to eliminate death for the believers. We will never see death again when we move into the eternal state And then he has overcome the second death. That's the judgment death. But the world truly fears death, and for good reason. This causes great anxiety. And Christians, we have a living hope, but right now they don't. Their hope is their family, their finances, their businesses. Their hope is everything that is present tense for them. There's always been events in the world that would bring fear to mankind. In Florida, we have hurricanes here. In California, we've lived in both now, have earthquakes, and we've seen fires sweep through towns, just destroying everything in its path. And man's been fighting wars and, uh, for, for since the time of the fall. Uh, it's not hard to be reminded that just after the fall, Cain kills Abel. in a a rage of hatred, of of not wanting to come to God, God's way. And so man has been warring and fighting ever since. Pandemics have nothing new to this world. When the world fell, we see a tremendous amount of problems go on in this world. We looked at it on Wednesday that this world is groaning, groaning under the weight of, of depravity. I looked at some of the major pandemics that we've had, and this one yet does not hold up very close to the major ones, but I want to remind you of a few of them that have happened, some just recently. The AIDS pandemic, a lot of people forget about that, but 36 million people died in 2005 to 2012 from AIDS. It started in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 76 and hit its height in the 2000s. And 36,000 people died of that. Further pandemics, a flu pandemic broke out in 1968. Many of our members here would maybe remember that. One million people died. It came out of Hong Kong and, and it just worked its way around the world's communities. And many people died from it. The Asian flu in 1956 ran for two years, killed two million people. It was a pandemic that broke out in uncontainable nature and again originated in the China area. The flu pandemic of 1918 killed somewhere, and they still don't know the figures of it, but 20 to 50 million people. This was serious, and it was a... It was a virus that not only targeted elderly people, but actually targeted the healthy young moms and dads, leaving millions of children as orphans. We got into the cholera era. Many types, there were seven cholera pandemics that happened. One in the early 1900s, 1910 through 1911, the total death was 800,000 people from it. It originated in India and spread across the nations. Another flu pandemic came in uh, 1889 through 1890. One million people died from this flu. It was called the Asiatic flu. And it surfaced out of Central Asia and the Turkey area and Canada and Greenland really suffered from this one. Third cholera pandemic broke out and another million people died in 1852 to 1860 just before our Civil War. This major outbreak hit um, all kinds of people, and India originated there, and they suffered greatly. Then, to even talk about how deadly sin has become in our world and the effects of sin is when you get to the Black Death. um, This is often referred to as the Black Plague, it was a bubonic plague. They figured that 75 to 200 million people died at this plague. The estimates were mostly in Asia but made its way across the world. They believed it traveled on fleas that rode on rats across boats and got into harbors and they could not stop it. And it bred and bred and pretty soon devastated the world. 200 million people. Italy again got hit bad I heard this week someone say that the bodies were stacked like lasagna. That's how bad they reported that. Then we get back, maybe into more into the early church. Uh, the plague of Justinian um, was in, in 541 to 542, lasted over a year. Fif, uh, 25 million people died of this plague. That says that half of the population of Europe died over this. It wiped out the Byzantine Empire and went on to kill so many people. Some cities lost 40% of their population. And then we get really close to the beginning of the church. The Antonian Plague in 65 AD killed another 5 million people. It was brought home by Roman soldiers that were around the greater Asian area. And that Roman soldiers brought that back to Rome. And 5 million people died and, and devastated the Roman community and the Roman army and so this is not the first time we've seen things and so i I, I thought about sharing this with you because sometimes and, and i am a bit skeptical of some of what's going on but for the world think about this for the world who doesn't know christ pandemic that's just that word brings fear into the hearts of people all these things cause people to realize that they have no control over death that's what it does we have no control over death. But as Christians, we should long for heaven, but realize that God has left us here. We should also long for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those who are perishing. And so yet we long for a coming heaven. We long for eternity. It is better, as Paul said, for us to remain to preach the gospel. And so as long as we are here in the flesh, we do those things. Now, The Bible is so encouraging during these difficult times, isn't it? It keeps us focused. It keeps us keeping on. Uh, Events like we're experiencing today remind us that Christians um, are to stop white-knuckling things, holding on to things so tightly. These things cause us to turn to Christ, and so it's used to strengthen the church. I think when we value things of this earth more than the things of heaven, it naturally creates a tension with our walk with God and so we start to examine this and imagine some of these plagues and these pandemics that I've just thought about can you see what the church was in it um, I wish I had time to tell you how the church reacted during this most of the time very positive positive. and most of the time many many church members died because they went right into the pandemic to go help people strangers and other church members and they received the plague as well and they died because they served God by serving others. But this, these things put tension on our walk with God. What do we hold on to? What is, what is the, the best thing that we, we cling to? Is it God or is it a 401K? Uh, boy, and, and, and I'm, I'm careful treading on that water because I know that uh, things can get difficult during these times. But yet these teach us the sin of anxiety. And this passage teaches us the sin of of anxiety, And it exposes what is in our hearts and what we truly treasure. What Paul is doing through Philippians 4 is he's causing us to look deeply of how to overcome anxiety, how to overcome fear, how to overcome those things that grip us. So let's look at a few thoughts this morning. We'll see how far we get and we will enjoy learning from God's word. Look with me at Philippians chapter 4. Verse 4. Our first point is react to anxiety with prayers of thanksgiving. Your Savior is near. Number one, react to anxiety with prayers of thanksgiving. Your Savior is near. Before we jump into verse 6, Look at verse four and five with me that Bobby read. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, to all mankind, to all people. The Lord is near. Verse, the first response that Paul is telling us, and remember the context here, if you see right at the end of verse five, the context is the fact that the Lord is near. He's with you. So, the first response of the Lord being near us is rejoicing. That's the first response of a believer. Think about this. We we could, I don't know if this thing would turn into what we, some of these other pandemics that I said, if 40% of places die. I don't know, but I I find great hope. And and the first reaction that my God is near is rejoicing. We're, We're not alone, friends. We're not alone, brothers and sisters. He's near, and, and that should cause you, as you sit on your couch and you're watching this or wherever you're at, that should bring you to rejoicing. The Lord is near us. We, we are not a people distanced from our God. He is there with us. He, in fact, he indwells us. The Bible says we're divine partakers of his nature in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He indwells us. He, he takes over us. We become his temple. I think that's great means for rejoicing. George Whitfield was a great evangelist and went through several pandemics and problems that happened and and always threatened. He was an evangelist that God gave great fruit to his ministry. Um, He made this quote, and I've never forgot it. He said, Let men and devils, I wrote in my notes, viruses, do their worst. I will rejoice in the Lord. Yea, I will rejoice. See, that's confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, confident that he's with us, confident that God has not forsaken us, that even in the most difficult times, he remains with us. Remember, in verse 5, the Lord is near us as the context here, so it says that the result of this is there's a gentle spirit about us, with all people, people that we come about. Well, what a time for the church to have a gentle spirit about them. Seeing people who are nervous or, or afraid, a neighbor that is quarantined themselves and locked away, can, how will you minister to them? How will they see this gentle spirit that you have, this fruit of the spirit that indwells us the Lord is near to us, he produces this love, this joy, this peace, this patience that produces us? How will we let them see what God has done? What a great gift. And so our first response is, is rejoicing because the Lord is near us. But look at verse six, and we're gonna do a bulk of our work in six and seven here this morning. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, verse six here is the second response to the Lord being near is we can live without anxiety. That's the second response of a God who takes up residence within you, that lives near you, that is with you, is that we can, it is possible, to live without anxiety. Now everyone hearing this sermon, hearing my voice, says, ah, ooh. Young and old, doesn't matter where you're at, we experience anxiety, don't we? We experience. We fear over things. We don't quite know what's gonna happen and so sometimes our first response is human, right? We try to figure something out. We try to make plans on our own. Well, what a great verse to remind us that the second response to God being near to us is that we can, it is possible, according to the scripture, according to God's word, that we can live without anxiety. And so the apostle is actually commanding us And what's funny about this is it's an imperative. It's a present active imperative. The apostle is commanding us to live without anxiety. You could translate the word this way. In no way be anxious. Strong. It's it's a command. And so instead of anxiety, we are to cast or invest ourselves in God through prayer and thanksgiving. Now, This strong statement here in verse six does not mean uncaring or careless. We are not uncaring or careless Christians. And I think we have to be careful of that with our comments even on what's going on. Remember, the world is deathly afraid of what the possibilities can happen with this virus. And so we must be careful that we are not careless um, we are careful with our responses even though it doesn't all add up to us and we have our questions of things that are going on this word does not mean to be careless and so we don't go about our life carelessly but it is an invitation here's what it is as apostle's doing is an invitation to follow Christ to live without anxiety because your heavenly father knows and cares about you and he is with you you're not alone and so that alone grants us this great strength. I think what Paul is doing here a bit is he's mimicking the words of Christ found in the Sermon of the Mount. I've heard that sermon mentioned many times this last week. He cares about sparrows. Gina and I were on a walk this week and early in the morning we watched a raven that was squawking at us. And, and I thought, you know, Gina, the Lord cares about that guy right there. How much more does he care about us? He wants us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness Instead of all those other things. Because he will take care of that. And so I think that Paul is mimicking some of these things. And Paul is making his case built on the fact that the Lord is near you. in apprehension and fear that marks the unbeliever. Marks the untrusting. Because it's present in their life. This is what they deal with day in and day out. Not so for the believer. Notice the word everything in verse 6. It stands in contrast to Nothing. (laughs) Right, so when you look at the verse, he says, "Be anxious for nothing." The contrasting word is in everything. So we're, we are not to be consumed with anxiety. That we are not. That, that we, we should have. We should not have that. But and then this contrasting word, we should have everything, meaning anything and all things that pertain to the details and circumstances of life. Pray and entrust them to God. It's, it, is, it is the Christian answer, isn't it? And we often do this, right? Oh, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll pray for you. It's the right answer. But is it the hard answer? Is that, is that the answer that's coming from my heart? Oh, Lord, I can feel anxiety. Those who have ever struggled with anxiety, ever struggled with some spiritual depression, you can feel it come upon you. You can feel the weight of that. You can feel it push you in directions that you don't want to go. Paul is exhorting at this time not to let that anxiety have control of you. But instead, in great contrast to anxiety, turn to a God who knows everything. And give him everything in prayer and thanksgiving. Many of you families are sitting around the computer or the TV screen or your phones right now. What does that mean for you? Dads. Working through with your children, single moms, working through with your children, helping them understand. We need to go to God in prayer about this. Maybe some of you have been laid off. I don't. I don't know all of your situations. We're trying to find out how all of our church is doing. But maybe you're going through this in some way. Have you turned to the Lord, dads? Are you going to turn to the Lord and lead your family there? Single moms, are you going to turn to the Lord? Um, oldest son or daughter in the family, who is going to lead here? When are we going to turn to the Lord in these times? I think about our young people, our, our singles, people that maybe live alone. What a great answer. Because uh, you could suffer. You could suffer with anxiety, and nobody know it. For me, I have a spouse that loves me, and she sees me suffer with anxiety or fear. She, she helps me with that, and vice versa. And she, and she teaches me to go to the Lord, and we, we go to the Lord together. But this is a great truth to remind us in our family situations, in the situation God has us. He is right there with you. Turn to him. See, the result is that when others fret and worry, believers submit their case. They submit their case to God in prayer, accompanied with gratitude and thanksgiving. So God commands us to make our petitions and our prayers to him. Ephesians reminds us of that. And here again in this imperative, he commands us, make your case. Make your case before God. That's a loving God. He's not a God that says, ah, make your case somewhere else. I'm not interested. I'm handling the big things. No, no. Those little details in our life, God is um, persuading us, pushing us to make our commands known to him. But there's a caveat there, isn't it? Make them with gratitude and thanksgiving. How do you do that? Well, that takes knowing God. That takes knowing who he is, that he is in control of all things. Our theology starts to come into play here, isn't it? And so, though we go through deep waters, though we go through difficult times, we make our case before God stating that we are thankful in a gratitude. One, that he saved us, that we did not deserve what we have. He had the right to judge us eternally. We start there with proclamation of thanksgiving and gratitude. But we still make our case. And God wants us to come to him that way. See, in doing this, we're acknowledging our utter dependence on God while at the same time expressing complete trust in him. So God, I'm dependent upon you and I put my trust in you. Boy, that's that's quite a statement. We had a wedding here yesterday and watched a couple, John and Deborah, give their vows to each other. They committed to each other. They, ca- they said verbally, "There be dependent upon each other. They will assume these roles of Christ in the church. There, beautiful relationship between husbands and wives. That's what we should all be striving for. But there's a dependency there. There's a trust, and no. There's no greater person we can trust than in than God Himself. Uh, and I think what's striking is this word with thanksgiving, and and Paul Paul teaches us throughout his. His whole ministry and all 13 epistles, we see him use terms like thanksgiving and gratitude. And and, and the the Apostle Paul could not, he could not imagine, I I don't think, if he was here to tell us this, I don't think he could imagine a Christian life that was not a constant outpouring of gratitude. I, I imagine he had his struggles, but as he writes what we know about him in the scriptures, I think he would argue with us that, why are you so downtrodden? This is a man that said he lost all things for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of Christ. And so I, I don't think he, can, he, he, can, he, would, he could even fathom Christians living an ungratitude, and that's probably true. And, and if we are people who are, have no gratitude and no thanksgiving, we might have to examine whether we're in the faith. Now, I got thinking about this. The lack of gratitude, I, I believe, is the first step to idolatry. Think about this. The lack of gratitude is the first step towards idolatry. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 tells us that even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. And guess what they did after that? They started exchanging the created things that God created and made them into idols. It's the natural outpouring of a fallen human person is if we don't give gratitude and thanksgiving to God, if we don't entrust our lives as Christians to him, the next step is idolatry. We will find something else to worship. And so Paul warns us of those, of those that have fallen away, that God has given over, and he tells us how that happened. It's because they lacked gratitude They lacked thanksgiving, and it causes you to be a step away from the sin of idolatry. See, thanksgiving is an explicit acknowledgement of our creative order, our dependency, our recognition that everything comes from the Father as a gift to us. And when you and I verbalize our heartfelt thanksgiving, we acknowledge the goodness of God, the generosity of God. One of the ways I try to pray is I thank God just for something that's very common. Like we, we probably pray this prayer maybe three times a day. If we eat three times a day, we'll say, Lord, thank you for this food. Um, I found myself very repetitious in that. And so I've changed my terminology just to maybe this will help you. Lord, I want you to know I'm grateful for this food. I'll, I'll try to use terms like that to make sure it's not just rote. But I do realize that God has given us This food. See, I think this type of praying puts our lives in proper theological prospect uh, uh, perspective. Excuse me, Uh, this type of praying puts our lives in proper theological perspective. We say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, my life and your life as Christians should be driven by our theology. What do we believe about God? Theology is a study of God. What do we believe about God? That comes from His word. So, so that dictates our life. And, and when our flesh and our desires, our fears, our anxiety is greater than our theology, guess what dictates our life? So anytime I fall into anxiety, um, spiritual depression of some sort, I realize that my theology is not holding up against my flesh. And now the flesh begins to dominate, and my view of God begins to suffer. And if you stay in that position too long, your view of God will change. We've had many people through our offices that at one time professed God and now question his existence. Because everything began looking at it through the gaze of, of their flesh and their struggles and what they're going through. And, and there's no thanksgiving in that, right? There's, there's no gratitude in that. It's, it's, now it's regretful. Well, why did you let this happen? How is this going on? And, and, and pretty soon there's a down spile that comes with that. And somewhere along the line, Christian, your theology of who God is and what He has said repeatedly through His Word has to help you overcome that. Otherwise, you will find yourself plunging into deep anxiety, deep depression. You are praying to a God who is near you, a creator of all things, who knows all things, sees all things. All things are before Him. And he is near all things. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Such a vivid uh, picture there. He fillets life. It's, It's laid right open in front of him. Past, present, future. All sits right in front of him. He sees it all filleted out before him. He knows the outcome of every detail in our life. And yet... We won't ask him. And when we do ask him, we lack thanksgiving and gratitude. We begin to demand of this kind creator God instead of submitting ourselves. Bobby read a great passage of scripture. I didn't know he was actually gonna read it. It was Romans 8. What a beautiful passage. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, positionally in Christ. There's no judgment that's gonna come. Ends with what Bobby read. There's no separation. So no condemnation, no separation from the love of God. And you know, he goes through that whole list in there and he talks about persecution and dying and, and of all kinds of things, right? Even plagues and viruses. But who, he says, who can separate us from the love of God? See, that's what Christians have. That's what drives the Thanksgiving in our hearts. I have a God who's near me. He won't leave me. He won't abandon me. He'll take me through that. There's a love that he's connected me to. In fact, he took me and he placed me in his son right in the middle of a triune love of God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all captured in him. And for us to come when lacking in thanksgiving, demanding of God, shows that our theology has failed in some sort. Not God, not God failing, not who he is failing, but us. This leads me to so many verses when you think about acknowledging God's sovereign over our life to reveal. Let me just give you some passages to jot down on your notes there. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keep an alert with an attitude of Thanksgiving. 1 Peter chapter five verse seven. You know this verse. Cast, throw, hurdle is the word. There, all your anxieties on him because what? Because he cares for you. Psalms ninety five two. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. The psalter wrote. Beyond that, Christians should pray with a knowledge that God is powerful. Psalm 62, 11, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. <laughs> power is not belonging to those who are coming up with an antivirus vaccine or anything like that. Praise the Lord, I'm hoping people are working on that. Power belongs to God. <laughs> not Democratic Party, not Republican Party, not anybody else. Power, ultimate authority, belongs to God. And so our lives are underneath that. So God promises to, to never forsake us and leave us. And that's the verse we quote so often, 13, Hebrews thirteen five. Make sure, now listen to this before you get to that promise. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself, double pronoun there, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I leave you and forsake you. So, and I think that verse is so important because if you're caught up in immorality, if you're caught up in the love of money, if you're caught up in the love of this life, if you're white knuckling that, your perspective of how close he is to you will change. So he says, make sure you're not caught up in this stuff. Make sure money doesn't have its its filthy grip on you. Make sure that you're, you're not fearful of all these things or dabbling in immorality or whatever you may be in because then you'll change your theology that he is not there. Too many people have come in and says, I prayed and God doesn't help me. And then we begin to investigate and look into the life and see bitterness and hatred and immorality. And you feel distance from God. God also will not abandon you in times of suffering. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, after excuse me after you have suffered for a little while the God of all grace what a great title who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you whoa what a statement What a reminder that he does these things. And don't forget that God has promised to see you through things. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will see us through these things. So it's hard to remain, listen, when you hear these verses, when you hear this theology, what you're hearing is theology this morning, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of his dwelling with us, the work of the Spirit. When, when you hear these things, it's, it's hard to remain in an, in an ancient state, isn't it? So what do we do? We build spiritual disciplines in our life. We get up in the morning, or, or maybe your time is at noon or, or in the evening. We read our Bibles. We talk to this God who is near us. Oh, friend, brother, and sister, build spiritual disciplines in your life or anxiety's coming to get you. It's natural to us as fallen people, but that's what we fight it off with. And, and as you read your Bible, be thankful to God. Uh, begin praying with more thanksgiving in your heart. Soon after this, you're probably all gonna have lunch, and, and maybe around the table or in some place. Practice right away. God, I want to give you thanks for this food. I know it came from you. Practice this thanksgiving. I promise you anxiety will begin to flee when we are full of gratitude and thanksgiving. Number two, peace or anxiety, which one will rule your heart and mind? Peace or anxiety, which one will rule your heart? Verse seven says, and the peace of God which passes all comprehension, Who? will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Well, it seems as though we have, have a choice to, to live at peace or with anxiety. Maybe, maybe it shouldn't be a choice, but it seems in the text, as, as we're being exhorted here, as we're being um, urged strongly with imperatives, that we have a choice to say, I'm gonna be full of anxiety, I'm gonna be full of fear, or I'll have the peace of God. There's one or the other. And I think Paul's doing this on purpose. And it seems as if God's word is saying, this is the way I worded it, if you want to pray to me and petition me with thanksgiving, I'll give you peace. If you want to, if you want to come to me, if you want to talk with me because I'm right here, and you want to come to me with thanksgiving and gratitude, I'm gonna give you peace. I think that's fascinating, right? So if we have, if we have to ask our question to ourselves we should say, which one do I want to rule my mind and heart? Do I Think about this. This is probably a no-brainer, but let's think through this. Do I want fear and anxiety to rule my heart? There isn't a Christian hearing this, this message, hearing my voice anywhere. A true Christian would say, oh, yeah, I want anxiety and depression to rule my life. No, we'd all say we want, we want God's peace, don't we? And so this question is put in front of us. And look at as we submit our situation, and everybody's situation is a little different. We submit our situation to God in prayer, filled with thanksgiving. He can, um, excuse me, we can expect God to deliver peace, which which will guard. I love that word; it protects. It's used of walls and individuals uh, that would guard our hearts and minds in our position in Christ. Now, notice the phrase "peace of Christ." I mean, peace of God here. It's an interesting phrase. It's another kind of title uh, in a way that God has. But, but here's what it means. It is the peace of God which belongs to God who dwells in perfect, and let me use the Hebrew word, perfect shalom and gives such shalom to his people. Now let me read that again. When he talks about peace of God, it is the peace of God because it belongs to God. So God is going to give us something that only he has. It's not the peace of Scott or the piece of Riverbend or the piece of, you know, whoever you are. It's a piece of God. He is going to give us his peace because he alone lives in perfect shalom. Perfect shalom. He is always at peace. Boy, I got thinking about that this week as I studied this. I said, oh Lord, we don't know that yet. We have never, any of us, had perfect peace in a lifetime right now we have peace resting peace in christ that's salvific we're talking about but in life our lord is never worried (laughs) think about that isn't that foreign to you and i as as humans he's never worried he never has anxiety he never goes boy well i don't know how scott's gonna figure this out he knows all things and so here's what he's doing for us. He's, he's going to give us his perfect shalom. He's going to give that shalom to his people. I think so many people are praying for the peace of Israel or the peace of whoever. Well, that doesn't come until Christ rules in you. It doesn't come for, for Israel and for a lot of this world that we'll see. is till Christ comes and sets his feet on, the, on this earth. But you and I, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, can have his shalom. We can have peace. And it comes through comprehending Him, understanding Him. Notice it is this peace that surpasses all understanding or beyond comprehension, your Bible might say. We go, what does that mean, Scott? How does how does that work? I, I, I know what I know. How how does that work? Well, here's what it means: it means God's peace totally surpasses The merely human or unbelieving mind, which is full of anxiety because it cannot think higher than itself. So what it says is before we're Christians, all we can do is think, the highest we can think is about ourselves. That's the best you can do as an unsaved person. You can only be consumed with yourself. That's the highest an unsaved person can go. No matter if they're giving to people, whatever, it's all as far as they can go. But through Christ, God takes us past the limits of our own human reasoning. You go, well, how do you explain that? One word, faith. One word, faith. God gives us a supernatural faith to believe. See, before you're saved, when you're left in your unbelief and you're untrusting, when you're left in that because you're still in your sin and you're blind and dark and callous and lost and, and all those things the Bible describes the unbelief, you are left to your human reasoning. Your human reasoning is absolutely deprived. It's failed. And it is limited at how it can handle situations. And it's very limited to how it views God. But what God does at time of salvation, he plunges faith into your heart and mind so that you believe that God is who God is. Because before you didn't believe it on your own. He gives you faith, you believe it surpasses anything your human mind could ever come up with. See, this is why we say it's God's gospel. The Bible says, Mark said that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. He brought a gospel to us that God used to open our eyes, our mind, gave us faith to believe what we could not on our own. And so now we begin to understand a God beyond our human mind's limits. And, And that's called theology. And we study him and we go, wow, isn't he amazing? And the rest of the world goes, why are you guys so wound up about this? But but see, he's taken us beyond the limits of a fallen human mind. And we do that when we come to him. When we pray, he grants us peace. And those prayers are accompanied with thanksgiving. And it affects us personally. And God carries those prayers to himself. They're brought to him with thanksgiving. And he gives us that peace. Now just think about the opposite for just a moment. I've done this several times in this message. How do you feel when anxiety rules your heart and mind in the opposite of it? We, we just talked about God giving us his salome, but how do you feel when, when anxiety and fear rule your heart and mind? Are you fun to live with? Imagine if we get your spouse or some family members or work, coworkers or boss, it's probably not very fun to live with. When anxiety rules our hearts, we are not fun people. We're not loving, we're not reflecting God. So So, hey, what's, what I'm trying to put it is, what other choice do you want? Do you want to live as a person who's not very fun, who doesn't sleep well? How, how, does, how does your heart full of anxiety affect your discernment? Oh my goodness. Some of the poorest decisions made by Christians are when they're full of anxiety. It's caused tremendous generational problems. Marrying people, they should not. Anxiety-filled, all kinds of crazy stuff goes on, and then generations beyond that suffer from those decisions made through anxiety. What about marriage and parenting? What about business decisions? Do we want to, to do all this without the peace of God? Ruling and guarding our hearts. And so it's times like this. It's what we're going through as as. It falls so short of what I read you of these other pandemics, but but regardless, our world is gripped right now. They're closing things that make no sense. And you go, why are they doing that? Because they are afraid. And we got to understand that. But you and I do not have to be. We do not have to be. Think about this verse, Isaiah 26, 3. Oh, I love this verse. Mark this down. The steadfast, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Let me read that again, Isaiah 26, 3. The steadfast of mine, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Oh, brothers and sisters, are we steadfast in Christ? Are we holding to him? Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. <laughs> wow, what a great phrase in there right? Now may the God of hope, Paul's closing out the book of Romans, at least he's trying. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Let me stop right there before I finish that verse. I think some Christians just go, well, I'm just waiting for joy and peace to fall on me. It's just going to fall out of the sky. No, no. God's giving you faith, It comes from faith. It comes from believing. God, I'm going through circumstance on my own. I can't do this, but I do believe who you are and what you've done. I put my faith in that. Oh, that's when joy and peace comes. The verse goes on to say that so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Spirit loves that, right? He brings his fruit to that. He creates love and joy and patience and kindness and all of that fruit of the Spirit begins to hang on this spiritual tree that we have and you begin to partake of that fruit and others around you because you believe. Psalms 29, 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. That's what he does. Christ died on that cross, went into that grave beat death, sin and satan and got out of it, we got peace. We got eternity of peace. And that's a resting peace, we're justified, we stand declared righteous before God. That's a peace that is an amazing peace and it does pass all understanding what God did. But beyond that, he gives you personal daily peace. Let's not forfeit that because of our sin of anxiety. One last verse and then we're gonna close here and we'll finish the rest of this next week. Jesus said the night before his death, and you can imagine, let me set the scene here. He's just about ready to go to the cross. Um, end of chapter 13, John says, uh, John records Jesus saying, I'm gonna die and I'm leaving you. He tells the disciples that. Judas has already gone off to betray him. He's down to the 11. He's, he's with the disciples. And he says, I'm leaving. And, and there, natural fear comes upon them. And, 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 he, and, and he has to calm them down and say, look, uh, I'm with you. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he, he begins to remind them. And Philip, of course, asks the question, well, show us the Father. He's so scared. He wants to see the Father. He says, have you seen the Father? You've seen me. He works his way all the way through that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father. He, he explains all that. And then he finally gets down to this phrase, chapter 14, verse 27 in this great loving shepherd uh, time where he's shepherding his future apostles of the church through this he says peace i leave with you verse 27 John 14:27 my peace here we are right back to god's shalom my peace i give to you not as the world gives do i give to you oh what does the world do the world gives and takes back all the time Markets are up and down. I mean, all the fear that comes with that, all the anxiety that comes with it. He says, my peace isn't like theirs. My peace does not ride on a bull market or a bear market. It doesn't ride on those things. I'm giving you my shalom. Just as God says he would give us his peace, the peace of God. Christ, because he is God, they're together Give us his peace. He says, I give you my peace. I give you my peace. And then he finishes it like this. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Isn't that amazing? He goes on after his resurrection. He meets them one last time. He says, where I am, but where you are, I am with you. I'm always with you. Another great command that he will never leave us. So as we go through this time, and next week we'll, we'll actually work our way down to the, towards the contentment part of this passage next week, but we're gonna look at eight and nine. We'll, we'll be reminded that there is a way to overcome anxiety. Most depression and most anxiety is spiritual for a Christian. You can't get around this. Most of it is, is spiritual, if not all of it. And when we go to God with that weight, that is on us. And we say, God, I bring this. I cast this to you. I am grateful. I come with gratitude and a heart that knows that God alone can do this. Oh, does he give us peace. He'll give you his alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together. We're spread out all over. Worshiping in isolation in a sense. And yet, we are reminded that you will give us your peace. We don't have to suffer alone, Lord, whether we're um, a single widow or a single woman somewhere or a young man or a family or whatever the case may be, Lord, or a single mom even. We don't have to suffer alone. The Bible says you are near to us. You are with us. We are divine partakers of Your nature, Lord. You have decided long ago before the foundations of the world to save us and put your spirit within us. And so, Lord, cause us to run to you. Pour our hearts at you. Lord, beyond that, now we're living in a crazed world where the lost, which is most people in this world, are afraid or frustrated. Some of them don't like what's going on, and and so they're frustrated, Lord. Maybe they're not suffering with fear, they're just mad. But Lord, we have the answer for that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God, cause us to be men and women, boys and girls, ready to proclaim. It's better for us to be here than to be with you, clearly, because you haven't taken us, so it's better for us to be here right now to be proclaimers of your gospel. And that might be just a cup of cold water in a conversation. So help us, Lord, be faithful at that. We praise you for this time in your word, Lord. You're worthy of our exaltation. You're worthy of our praise of you. With gratitude and thanksgiving, we've delivered this truth to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.